Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the latest Data Bytes, getting things done with data in government, supported this month by Luminati Networks. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's a pleasure, as ever, to welcome so many of you this evening. And let's start, as ever, in the traditional way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. And hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. For those of you who may have tuned in expecting a repeat of last month's sea shanty about government data, for those of you who missed it, no, really, I'm afraid I'm going to have to disappoint you tonight. But who knows when we might get musical again? You'll just have to keep watching the series to find out. No singing, but we have four terrific vocal and visual performances in store for you tonight, and I know they'll strike the right note, so there's no need to get crotchety. Let's start as ever with some housekeeping. We are on the record and are being live streamed, obviously. If you want to get involved on social media, we're live tweeting from at IFG events and the hashtag is IFG Databytes. <clears throat> and if you want to submit questions uh, for me to put to our speakers, you're almost certainly already watching this video on Slido, so you can use the tools there. If you're not, you might be on the IFG YouTube channel. You can go to bit.ly slash Slido DB17, case sensitive, capital S, capital DB. Why do we host Databytes? We want Databytes to bring the many different communities in and around government uh, to data together. We want to show people, including those who don't think of themselves as data people, what better data can mean in practice. And we want to put interesting projects on the record for us all to learn from. That's the why, now the how. This evening, you will be treated to four presentations on different data projects. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. You can hopefully see the timer on screen. There are eight bits in a byte, so there are eight minutes in a data byte. Each presentation will be followed by eight minutes, yes, eight minutes, of your questions that I will put to the speaker, or in one case this evening, speakers. Then we move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 17th event. You can watch the previous 16 on the Institute for Government website. That's our fantastic February foursome from last time out. So what's happened since we last met in February? Well, if like me, you're Welsh, you'll have been celebrating St. David's Day earlier this week. The Institute for Government celebrated by publishing a new report chock full of charts looking at spending in the different nations of the UK and how devolved funding works. This is just one of many. Now, since it was St. David's Day, there are a few charts on Wales and Union I want to focus on tonight, specifically Wales and Rugby Union. This is a really important chart showing the result of the Six Nations grudge match between Wales and England on Saturday. That red line shows the Welsh score by minute. The white line shows the English score, such as it was. We can even fill in the lead to make it even easier to read off Wales's victory by 40 points to 24. Now, the result of that Welsh victory, the knock-on effect, if you will, is that Wales sit at the top of the Six Nations table. Personally, I don't think there's enough innovation in sports data visualisation, so let's innovate. The table is now spaced out by the number of points each nation has, and you can see just how far out in front Wales are. Apologies to any English rugby fans who found that segment trying. Sticking with the nations of the UK, one of the big place-based debates recently has been the government's pledge to move more civil servants out of Whitehall. As you can see from this chart, one in five civil servants are currently based in London. But as we move up through the various grades from most junior to most senior, 
you can see there's a particular issue with the most senior grades. More than two thirds of all senior civil servants are based in London. We see similar trends by civil service profession with policy jobs being concentrated in the capital. A few weeks ago, the government announced plans for a second headquarters in Wolverhampton for the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, MHCLG, or as we're determined to call it, Mahoka Logo. As one of our previous Databytes presenters, Catherine Bromley, pointed out on Twitter, that means we can now refer to the two headquarters as Mahoka Logo Low and Mahoka Logo Woe. In moving civil servants out of London, departments need to ensure it goes beyond symbolism. So it's important Mahoka Logo know what they're trying to achieve, that ministers and senior leaders at Mahoka Logo show the way, and that the seeds Mahoka Logo sow mean that where Mahoka Logo go, others follow. One hopes there are no Mahoka Logo no-go areas. Today it was announced that the Treasury, HMT, will set up a new campus in Darlington, which stunningly the entire UK press has not yet dubbed HMTs. HMT will hope their move is a boon to the area, not an additional burden. That announcement came as part of today's budget, one of the main feasts of the think tank calendar. My IFG colleagues have already turned around instant analysis of the announcements. The Resolution Foundation and Institute for Fiscal Studies will be working through the night, but none of them will bring you this important analysis. Yes, which drinks different chancellors have drunk while delivering the budget? It's said to be the only occasion where politicians are allowed to drink alcohol in the Commons. It's a rather incomplete data set, so we've only got each chancellor since 1974 and a select few others that were easy to Google. As you can see, in recent years, the only budget boos in the Commons have been the responses to Philip Hammond's jokes, with every chancellor since Gordon Brown opting for water. Gladstone had sherry with beaten egg, and Derek Heathcote Amory had milk and honey and rum. I almost feel a sea shanty coming on. Were these long or short drinks? Is there a spurious correlation between tipple and time taken to deliver the speech? Well, let's look at budgets since 1979. All the water-based ones are somewhere around the hour mark. The alcoholic ones do raise the bar. That said, the shortest ever budget was Disraeli at 45 minutes. Maybe the brandy helped him acquire his nickname of Dizzy. The longest continuous budget speech, let's just change the measure, was given by his great rival Gladstone. Fortified by sherry, a fortified wine, was probably the only noise Gladstone was capable of making after a full four hours and 45 minutes at the dispatch box. Usually dry, associated with ageing and capable of discombobulating and sending people to sleep, the budget is usually set just once a year. Turning to this evening, we have a particularly exciting and eclectic lineup for you. First, we'll hear from Laura Sands, Chair of the Energy Digitalisation Task Force on how digitalisation should reshape energy. Then we'll hear from Samantha Riley, Deputy Director of Intensive Support at NHS England and NHS Improvement on making data count. After Samantha, we'll hear from Orr Lenkner, CEO of tonight's sponsors Luminati Networks, with a commercial perspective on the ethics of data collection. And last but not least, we'll have Ian Grimstead and Lee Chen, senior data scientists at the Office for National Statistics Data Science Campus, on estimating vehicle and pedestrian activity from town and city traffic cameras. We'll be back with our next event on Wednesday the 7th of April, and then the first Wednesday of the month through to the summer, so do add those dates to your diary. Tonight's event is supported by Illuminati Networks. We're only able to continue Databytes thanks to our kind sponsors, so we are very, very grateful to them this evening. If you'd like to follow their excellent example and sponsor a Databytes event, please do email Pratesh. If you work in government data and would like to speak or know someone who should, please get in touch with me. 
As ever, we'll be having some virtual drinks after tonight's event, sherry with beaten egg optional. I'll put these details up later as well. The case-sensitive link is bit.ly slash db17drinks, and case-sensitive password is ifgdb17. But in order to toast for excellent presentations, we first need to hear them. So let's go to our first one of the evening. Laura, over to you. Thank you so much, Gavin, and it's absolutely brilliant to be part of Data Bytes. And thank you so much for wetting my um, <laughs> wetting my appetite, but actually uh, making me feel exactly like I would need a drink now. Um, I've been chair of the Energy Data Task Force, which was a government uh, a, a government pr promoted task force looking at data in the energy sector. Um, but quite soon it's going to be announced that there will be an energy digitalization task force that I'm very proud to work with the energy system catapult uh, to also uh, chair. So my real issue is that data is really important, but it's actually what we do with it that's going to be exciting. And how do we translate that into digitalized uh, infrastructure? So I will talk a little bit about energy, but and be beyond. So the journey in energy has only just started, but let me just paint a picture of what the energy sector is going to look like. Currently, we've got 400 people, more or less, who are the big players in the energy sector. That is going to move in quite rapid period to 50 million actions and assets. The 400 all know each other's golf handicap. The 50 million are you and I with our EV cars, our heat pumps, etc. So where do we, what do we need to do to be able to manage the 50 million actors and actions on this extraordinarily important and in some ways not fragile but also but sensitive system? Um, so we've got the quantity of actions, the diversity of these actors and actions, interactions, um, and the devolution of roles and responsibilities. That is the challenge, and we've got to get that right. And currently we're playing blind man's bluff. But the excitement is that we can look at utilizing uh, digitalization as a way to optimize our consumption, um, to release the value, to release customer rewards. We need storage and flexibility. Um, and we also need to make better investment decisions. This in the middle here could be the energy regulator trying to manage all of these different interactions. And our proposition is that if we live and continue to live in an analog world, we will not be able to manage this. So our overall strategy is, and this is something that we talk about in relation to energy, but it is actually all infrastructure is we've got to get data openness. We've got to get that first stage, which is data visibility. And that was really the Energy Data Task Force, which I'll go on to a little bit describe. But what does that give us? It gives us infrastructure and asset visibility. Then we need to layer on what actually these pieces of infrastructure and asset actually do, the operational optimization. And then we need to release the markets. And all of these um, key uh, energy, key sort of data and digitalization processes are in place in other sectors. They are just not very, very evident when it comes to the energy sector that is still living a little bit in the 20th century. But those who are listening who are interested in regulation, it is absolutely crucial that you end up having the visibility of these 
issues. So the data task force looked at delivering a modern digitalized energy system. And there were two key aspects to this. Um, filling in the gaps, there's lots of data gaps, which I'm sure all of you across government have an issue with, but also maximizing the value. And the area that we think is really exciting and quite sort of dramatic in terms, and we thought we'd get more pushback, is this issue about presumed open. Um, and when we published, uh, both Bayes and Ofgem adopted all these principles and have started really deeply rolling them out into regulation. So now we've got regulated assets that are being asked to presume that all their data is open and that they are being driven to develop effective digitalization strategies that will really start to unlock the opportunity that we've got across our infrastructure. Um, we have three key products, a data catalogue, um, an asset registration, and a digital system map, which is a little bit like a digital twin, and things are moving on all three of those. Just quickly on lessons learned, our approach was, we all know that we're not very good at this, but we're getting better, and we're all on a journey. So nobody is there to be accused of uh, no penalties at this early stage. The government and regulators approach to us was crucial, their leadership was crucial, and it was absolutely crucial that the sector believed in their commitment. Industry was really up for it. Um, there are gaps and there are lots of gaps right across government and industry around our skills, which is really important. But I have to say it was a great experience with Ofgen Bayes and the sector uh, moving forward. The next excitement is the digitalization of the energy system. And you can see that what we need is system stability, all this interaction between these 50 million um, sort of actions and activities, um, prices to devices, which I love. But actually what we really need to do is to drive transformed business models through digitalization. Digitalization is not an enabler, it's a transformer. But I'm sure all of you from government are also very aware of the risks and, and mitigations required. We do need to focus on governance and regulation, consumer detriment, data monopolies, oh, data monopolies and standards and rules, and we will be developing those. But just to finish on actually the exciting thing is not energy. It is how energy and all our infrastructure and our communications are starting to conflate. Energy and telecoms is becoming one infrastructure. Buildings, energy and transport are also conflating. Water is the largest um, consumer of energy. And what we would like to do is to see that some of our, our data task force principles are adopted across regulatory regimes, obviously adapted, but really driving this cross-sector innovation and productivity. So I leave you with, watch this space. Um, from the brawn to the brain, when we start to look at digitalization and infrastructure, we have got a huge amount to gain and we've got a huge opportunity to have a really truthfully uh, modern and progressive infrastructure sector that delivers net zero at lowest cost, but also with a lot of new exciting business models to come. Thank you very much, Gavin.
Fantastic. Thank you very much, Laura. Um, and just a reminder, everyone watching, if you'd like to put your questions to Laura, hopefully you're already on Slido. If it asks for a code, that's hashtag DB17. And if you happen to be watching us uh, on YouTube, you need to go to bit.ly slash Slido db17 um so many questions i want to ask you based on that laura um but i wanted to start with the the sort of point that you're making around presumed open um obviously sort of open data was was a, was a huge thing um about a decade ago and i think in some sectors we've seen some retreat from that why do you think actually in the energy sector people were still very open to it as it were well i have to say gavin just between you and me and maybe the other few hundred people. I was very surprised at um, how everybody embraced it because particularly energy has got lots of security issues. Um, however, what we were very clear about was it wasn't open data, it was presumed open. And we've developed, well, the energy systems catapult, who've been really the brains behind this, um, developed a triage process. So instead of starting from closed and fearful, we start from open and optimistic. And then one looks at that data and starts to triage as, as you start to understand what actual risk it could um, deliver. But we've been both surprised and very, very pleased that um, the sector and the regulator have absolutely embraced this principle. And we're hoping very much that it will also roll out in areas such as water, um, telecoms as well. But it is only useful, that data, if it is presumed open and we have access, access to what, to be frank, you and I have actually paid for, because a lot of this is regulated assets. Fantastic, thanks. And we've actually got another question that sort of follows up on, on that sort of openness point. Um, this is from Anonymous. Good to see you again, Anonymous. Um, they ask, by presuming data is open, do you think there's a risk of preventing new innovative services from emerging, which might flourish if data exchange transactions were allowed to develop? So is there a sort of downside to openness? Well, I don't think when it comes to issues like our energy system, I think that um, you can triage your data if there is a commercial reason that actually is an imperative that stops that data that you have invested in building that data. But when we're talking about things like electricity networks, um, let's say water, etc., these are assets that you and I have paid for. And if we can find new innovative business models that can sit on top of that data, optimize that infrastructure, drive more from, from less and actually build new business models, it is actually a promoter of innovation, not a depressor of innovation. Um, but what we're doing is we're democratizing the opportunity to create those innovative businesses that really um, drive productivity and decarbonization. Thanks. You've mentioned water a couple of times. We've got a question from Jeremy um, who says that you, you sort of said that water is the largest user of energy, which um, came as a big surprise to, to Jeremy and probably a few other people. Um, and wondered if you could expand on that point a little bit. I apologise. Water's second, I think, after chemicals, its second highest um, bill is energy. So it is a very large energy consumer and is one of the biggest energy consumers as an industrial sector. So it, um, and its interrelationship with when it requires energy actually creates quite an interesting opportunity to optimize the energy system, 
and optimize uh, water supply by that conflation, but also by sharing both data um, and asset capabilities. Great, thank you. From from water to um, heat, Andy Frew asks, um, with heat to be largely electrified, can we get access to more data on the heat demand profiles that will affect power system investment needs? Right. Well, I have to declare an interest here. I'm, I'm a, a non-executive director of a, a, of a network. So um, I, I think we're going to find, firstly, I would say that we're going to have a mixed heat economy because we're going to have uh, lots of different um, uh, heat solutions and electrification will be, will sort of almost knock out the um, electricity networks if it was all electrified. Um, and now I've just totally forgotten the, the guy, the, question what was the last um, bit? can we get access to more data on the heat yeah. demand profiles that will affect power system investment uh, needs absolutely and that's where we want to ensure that we can get those that profile um opened but it is it should be available on through some of the um code bodies um, it will start, all the code bodies have signed up to presumed open. So they will start to show exactly the trades, the profiles and the demand curves that exist in heat um, and in electricity. And obviously then also in transport as we move to um, a, an electrified transport system. Uh, we've got about two and a half uh, minutes left. So there's still time for people to bring their questions in. In the meantime, we've got one which follows on quite nicely from that, which is from regular Data Bytes attendee Simon Briscoe. Evening to you, Simon. Um, what is the new data and where and when will I be able to see it? Well, you should start to be able to see it reasonably, I mean, already, because there has been um, quite a few of the networks have published it. So what it is fundamentally at this stage, I mean, it is actually a concept that, that needs, that's going to work right across the whole energy system. But if we talk about regulated assets, we're talking about the flows of electricity uh, through our networks, um, through transmission lines, um, and what one might call quite aggregated um, consumption data. So that's what is being made more and more available. Um, the market trades up to a point um, through the code bodies are going to be, are already being made available. Um, Ofgem and Bayes have got a commitment to release their data and they hold a huge amount of um, useful data that can actually be used by innovators. Um, and so, as I said, we're on the journey, but everyone has accepted the principles and they are starting to be embedded in regulation um, and through through best practice right across the board. But I'm hoping and we will be in our digitalization task force um, holding people to account and making sure that that data is available and open as much as is presumed feasible. Excellent. Um Obviously, this task force has sort of come out of the uh, previous energy uh, data task force. Um, there are lots of task forces and strategies around data in government at the moment. What advice would you give to anybody running any of those other strategies, notably the national data strategy, about how to actually translate it into something which makes a difference? Um, I think we, we were very, very clear that we wanted no more than five recommendations. And I think it's absolutely key that what one gets is both is, is the principles and the underpinning as one's core strategic 
recommendations. Um, we can go into lots and lots of detail about all the smaller elements, but if you don't get those principles in place and you don't land them and they're not actually able for departments to consume and then operationalize them, um, you end up with some lovely reports that sit on great bookshelves behind Zoom calls rather than actually get operationalized. So I would say that the other thing is we brought everyone along with us during the journey. We used um, some agile method of in ensuring that we were getting input at all stages. And by the time we published, most people had been in many ways socialized to the ideas, had felt that they had input, which they did, and that government and the regulator felt that they had common ownership. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, we're out of time. I'm going to ask one final question uh, with a, for asking for a one sentence answer. Apologies to anybody whose question I didn't get to. Um, Anonymous asks, what should people in the audience go out and do? They should have, a, they should look to drive their government, their departments to not be frightened of presumed open. Um, to drive um, a much greater understanding. We've got very, very limited digital literacy within senior management, within government, within companies, and actually start painting opportunities. Don't talk about geekery, talk about outcomes and talk about achievements that can be delivered through digitalization, greater open data, and in many ways, innovation. Amazing. Laura, couldn't have asked for a better start to this evening's event. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Gavin. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks. Um, I think that point about um, sort of helping senior leaders is particularly interesting. For those of you who missed uh, Databytes 16 uh, last month, we had James Coote from 10 Downing Street talking about some work uh, that's going on at the moment to try and tackle some of that. Um, now over to our second speaker this evening, Samantha Riley. Good evening to you, Samantha. Good evening, Gavin. Hopefully you can see my slides. We can indeed. Fabulous. Excellent. Over to you. Evening, everybody. It's great to be with you. I'm going to talk to you about work that's underway in the NHS that's causing a real wave of change for the positive in terms of how we use our data. So how do we use our data currently? Where are we now? So sadly, these are the kinds of visualisations that I commonly see in my job. I work at NHS England, it's a national body, and this is how most of the trust reporting, hospital reporting, would look like. So not a terribly pretty picture. I'm hoping that you're going to agree. What kind of comments do I read? When I read board reports, when I read divisional reports, we see lots and lots and lots of comments that look like this. So a slight increase, a slight deterioration, um, so we're awash with comments that look like this. I don't know if this is something that chimes with the rest of you. Now, I hope that we all agree that it's really important that we're focused by the data that we've got. So let's look at a little quick excerpt. So this is from a 300 page report. What do we see here? We see a little arrow that tells us that the number went up this month. And let's look at the comment that's attached to that. So I read about an increase from 95.36 to 95.76. Now, is that an important comment to be drawing people's attention to, or might it be a tiny bit distracting? 
So question for you, audience. Um, if we've got two numbers, what do we know about the second number in relation to the first? I know that you're all data people, so you immediately know this answer. It's not a difficult answer. It's going to either be higher or lower or the same, isn't it? Those are the only options. So are any of you old enough to remember this? Good old Bruce Forsyth playing your cards right. This was basically the game. Is the card going to be higher or lower or the same? But the problem in the NHS is that often we have a bad reaction if a number goes in the wrong direction. So over the recent few years, we've revived a word called spuddling. It's an old English word. It's from the West Country. What's the definition of spuddling? To make a lot of fuss about trivial things as if they were important. My suggestion to you is that we do lots and lots of data spuddling, or at least we do in the NHS. Now, people have liked this word spuddling. It's really chimed with them. So they've asked for, um, could we create some cards for them? So here we've got Alistair, who's an anaesthetist, and he has got the first set of spuddling cards. So he basically raises these cards if he's in a meeting where he suspects somebody that is spuddling with data and overreacting. So yellow card first warning, red card, of course, is your more forceful second warning. Let's look at an example. This data relates to um, elective waiting times. So planned um, surgery, how long do patients wait? Now we've got a target in the NHS to be achieved, which is 92%. So when I share this with most audiences and I ask them about the colour, does the red and green help us in our decision making? Most people are gonna tell me that it does. Doesn't help if you're colourblind, by the way, you can't see those colours. Let's just look at two examples here. Let's look at general surgery. We see a picture that's all red and we've got a downward arrow at the end there. So do we get the sense that this is a declining indicator? It's failing, performance is terrible, probably. Let's plot the data over time and what do we see? Here we see, in fact, there's been fantastic improvement. Let's have another look at an area of rheumatology. So it looks exactly the same in the VAG table. It's got a downward arrow. What do we see if we look at the data over time? Here we see a totally different picture. We can see that things are going wrong. So hopefully now you can see why I'm on a mission to ban these RAG rated reports. So the charts that I've just shown you are statistical process control charts, SPC for short. They're simple charts, it's time series data. We have these three lines on an SPC chart. We've got um, the, me the mean or and upper process limits. Now they're based on a particular calculation, 99% of the data is gonna fall between those lines and we need at least 15 data points to create a chart. We have rules that tell us if there's an unusual pattern in the data and our color convention is orange if it's concerning and blue if it looks like improvement. So if we're seeing a rule triggered, that special cause variation, if we don't know what caused it, we need to go and find out. But we've got lots of targets in the NHS. So if we look at this graph, we've got a target to be achieved of 40 or greater. What do we learn from the charts? Well, remember the data falls between the gray dotted lines. So now we know the likelihood of achieving this is negligible. So what are we gonna do if we want to achieve it? We need to go and redesign the system. There's a really strong evidence base that says that we make better decisions if we use SPC to look at our data. This is applicable for a whole range of different areas, including, I'm sure, some of the areas that you're working in. It started in industry about 100 years ago. Now, how do we make SPC work for us? 
We have to highlight when one of those rules is triggered. So remember, orange is concern, blue is improvement, gray is nothing going on of interest. We've got icons that summarize the key messages from the data. The variation icon tells us whether things are getting worse in the orange, better in the blue, or not really changing in the gray. And if we've got targets, the blue P, we're always going to achieve that target. The orange F, we're always going to fail. And the question mark is that flip-flop situation when we'll sometimes achieve and sometimes not. Really do need data words that support the data. So commentary is really important um, in terms of describing what is going on. So let's look at two quick examples. Cancer is a really important area for the NHS. We've got lots of targets, including a 62 day target. Here we can see a RAG summary. And then I'm going to show you some comments, some commentary. So I read about pressures in the first two months, recovered the position in March. I looked back over reports, pressures have continued, a good recovery, sustainment was difficult, August showed improvement, fabulous. What does my SPC chart shows me? So here it is. So I've coloured the dots with whether we've achieved the target or not. So you can see there's lots of achieving and not achieving. That's when it's dangerous territory, we might be spuddling. Let's take away those artificial colours. Now what do we see? We just see common cause expected variation. Let's overlay the chart with when I have read about pressures, recovery, pressures, recovery, difficult times and improvement. With actually, we've got common cause variation. We're gonna hit and miss the target randomly and we've got very wide process limits. So we should look to understand and reduce that variation. My last example, again, 62 day cancer performance, a horrible chart. We hate these spaghetti charts, lots of different lines. What do I read in the commentary? A further decline, a doubling of cancer treatments, most completed in December and a recovery plan. Let's look at my SPC chart. You can see what's going on here. We've got those orange dots of concern for a long, long time. Let's look at the target line and the process limits. It's unlikely we're going to achieve the target and we haven't achieved it for absolutely ages. When would this organisation have noticed that problem? Well, they would have noticed it at least six months earlier. What were they looking at back then? This is what they were looking at. Same horrible chart. And these were the words that I read. I read about an improvement in performance and optimism to deliver this. Now, I'm optimistic, but optimism clearly is not enough. What does good look like? Organisations are now changing their reporting. Half of the trusts in England are changing their reporting. They're using icon summaries, a snapshot glance of what's going on, and then they're looking at indicators together to give them a picture. What do people say when they've had a training session in making data count? These are the kinds of comments, a transformative moment for people. So if you're interested, we've got two interactive PDFs. Here's the web page. Go and have a look at them. Um, they're very engaging, lots of links and videos embedded in them. Um, my parting thought for you is if we used SPC more standardly in place of RAG reports, we would be less headless chicken and doing much less spuddling. And if we were doing that in the NHS, which we are starting to do, we could focus on our patients. We run lots of free training. They're all one hour sessions long. So if you're interested, there's a link there to our Making Data Count platform, which any of you can join. And on Twitter, I'm at Sam Riley and the hashtag is plot the dots. So that's a whistle stop tour of Making Data Count.
That was fantastic, Sam. Thank you very much indeed. And um, we've got some great questions that have come in already. Um, just a reminder to everybody else, um, please keep them coming via Slido. If you're not already on Slido, go to bit.ly slash Slido DB17. And it's, it's great to see an example of where good data visualization can actually help decision making and, and really highlights why it, why it matters. Um, the first question um, that I wanted to ask, and I thought somebody would ask this, uh, is from Anonymous, which is, where can they get their own spuddling cards? Oh, well, I have some right here and I do have quite a lot in my house. So my suggestion is if you're interested in cards, I should also say we've got little hard copy mini guides because you can't carry down around 100 page interactive PDF in your bag, but you can carry one of those. Jump onto one of those training sessions. I'll tweet the link a bit later. And then we'll have a form that you can fill in to get your own cards and mini guides. So I think we might have some um, people that are working with Spudlers. Do you think, Gavin? <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> um, thank you very much for that. Um, we've got um, a question from Craig um, as well. He says um, they had cancer recently. Um, I hope you're uh, you're recovered, Craig, um, and sort of talks about some of the difficulties of medical records between different hospitals um, sort of not, not being merged or viewable. So his question is, why is there no single NHSX or NHS so data taxonomy, ontology and data field parameterization library and owner? So I suppose how, I suppose that, that there's a wider question there about sort of interoperability of data between different parts of the system. I don't know if you've got any comments on that. Ah, so one of the big challenges. So um, people have been trying to solve this for a very long time. Um, back in history, we had something called the National Programme for IT, which failed fairly abysmally, I think, when we tried to get everybody to use the same system. That didn't really work. So the, the focus now is on interoperability, as you've said. Um, this is not my area of expertise, but it's absolutely one of the greatest priorities. And um, I'm hopeful that over the next few years, NHSX clearly has got a massive role in this. Um, we're starting to get there, but a little bit more of a way to go. Thanks. Um, we've got a question from Mary Susan Barry. Good evening to you. How much spuddling has been deployed during COVID-19 press briefings? Oh, that's a very difficult question, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I haven't got any evidence to show that there absolutely has been spuddling. Um, I don't know if anybody on this um, session has done. Um, we might, of course, have seen some spuddling. It is absolutely possible. What I should say is that um, SPC, the approach that I'm promoting, um, probably wasn't the right approach if we were looking at COVID in the early days, because, of course, we knew that the numbers were going absolutely up very, very quickly. It probably is a very good approach once we get to a fairly stable situation to start to understand actually are things starting to, to maybe pick up again. And I know that some of our trusts were using precisely that approach when we had that kind of lull back in the summer. Um, I suppose um, a related question in some ways from uh, Sam from Med Confidential, evening to you, Sam, um, which is, can you get NHS Digital to do this? It would make his life so much easier. So again, I suppose, how do you how, how do you make sure that as many people as possible are starting to learn these techniques? And what are the main barriers to people not doing so? OK, so actually, um, 
lockdown we had to as you Gavin you had to change what you did in terms of these sessions so we did exactly the same and it's actually really helped us I've got a team of three people so there's not many of us to cover the whole country so we've changed all of our um, training to go online and we've trained 3,000 people since we've been in lockdown um, including some people from NHS Digital and NHSX so um I think the answer is, of course, training more and more people. And this is a great opportunity to get a wider audience involved. In terms of the challenges of getting people to do it, this might sound ridiculous, but we haven't really found very many challenges. I think the challenge has been time. We've got free tools if you want to create your own charts, by the way. Um, I'll tweet the link later. If you want to plot your way to anything interesting like that, like I do, then you can create your own charts. We've got an analyst network of over 300 analysts, and they're helping other people across the country to make this change because not every organisation in the NHS will use the same information systems. They might have Power BI, some people might use SQL, Tableau, a whole range of different areas. So we haven't really found a barrier in terms of getting people to do it, it's more getting the message out there. Uh, this question sort of follows on quite nicely from that as well uh, from Simon Briscoe. The new charts look great but who are they for? Will NHS ever be a bit more open with such data? Okay, so the charts, well, the charts that I'm talking about in my work, the charts are for anybody who's working within the NHS. Um, but what I can say is that I've trained lots lots of people that are um, governors on trust boards. They're normal people that are just um, doing everyday normal jobs. And the training that I'm delivering to a board is equally as applicable and it works really well to anybody. So um, I, th I do think that we need to be, I, I think we are quite transparent about data in the NHS. If you think about um, board papers, for instance, they're all public documents. So we're now seeing a change in terms of what those public documents look like. Um, and you can get loads and loads and loads of data from the NHS England website on the stats page. So I think we're pretty open. It's more about getting the message out there more widely. Excellent. We've got just over two minutes left, so there is time uh, if you want to ask Sam a question. Uh, we've got another one from Anonymous. I've no idea if it's the same Anonymous or a different Anonymous to earlier. Um, sort of asking NHS post-COVID, will you be resetting your intensive care treatment performance uh, four hours now that all the Thursday, Friday, Saturday drinkers, who are a massive <laughs> burden, have now got used to staying at home? Um, and again, I think there's a really interesting wider question there about sort of resetting um, according to targets and SPC. Yes, that is a very good question. Of course, we might have seen a seasonality effect, effects there, mightn't we, in terms of a weekend drinking. Um, we certainly see things like discharging less people from hospital at the weekends. I think it's a really good question. I think we need to have a good look at that. One of the things that I'm expecting is that there's probably been a real increase in um, critical care capacity as a result. So we need to have a look at that. Um, so I suggest that the person asking the question knows a bit more about SPC charts. So there are times when we should be recalculating those process limits. And we do have a nice little mini flow chart in here should you wish to know when that should happen but basically you need to know that something's changed you need to be able to see that there is special cause variation and you need to be confident that it's been sustained so i think that yes we need to revisit a lot of data sets post covid excellent i think that question was uh, from craig again so thank you for that one craig um You've, we've talked a lot about the sort of use of this in the NHS. Clearly, it's something that could have um, application more widely across the public sector. 
to what extent have you spoken to some non-NHS organisations about uh, rolling this out? Well, I haven't spoken to very many because we've been quite busy with the NHS. <laughs> and most of our work so far has been with trusts. We've got the whole of primary care. Um, we've now got integrated care systems that are being established. So I'm, I'm keen to talk to anybody, very happy to talk to anybody, jump on our training. But I'd quite like to fix the NHS with their data first and then give me a couple of years, maybe I'll be able to move on. <laughs> Excellent. Well, hopefully uh, tonight's presentation um, will be of great use to lots of people across government. I've, I should say I've seen the sort of fuller version of this and it's well worth um, your time as well. So do get in touch with Sam if you want to uh, learn more. Sam, thank you very much indeed. That was that was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So um, it's now time for our third speaker this evening, uh, the Chief Executive of uh, Luminati Networks, our sponsors for this evening, Orl Lenkner. Over to you, Orl. Hello. I'm sure you can see my screen, Gavin, right? We can indeed, and we can hear you nice and clearly. So over Great. to you. So first of all, I can get you some very interesting sports data for the next event opening slide. I love these, and, and we can help you out with some more interesting data. So feel free to ask. Um, thank you for having me in the Data Bytes event. My name is Orl Lenschner, and I'm the CEO of Luminati Networks. Before I dive into the very important topic of ethics in data collection, let me tell you just a bit about Luminati and what we're doing. Um, Luminati is an extensive online data collection platform for public and openly available web data. We are committed to delivering the most accurate, reliable, and ethically sourced web data to all of our customers, basically making the public web transparent again, as it should be, without any discrimination. We were founded in 2014 with one goal in mind, which is to provide free and transparent access to the internet for all organizations, big or small. Ever since then, we've been expanding our reach, and these days we serve thousands of customers from across almost every industry, sector or market, and everyone who basically require large-scale, openly available or public online data. Collection of web data has become mission critical to many companies, including Fortune 500 companies, many of which are UK-based. We also extended this commitment and support to over 65 governments, NGOs, NPOs, and leading academic institutions that needs data for a variety, variety of research and education projects, as well as initiatives that fight against social injustice. And I would go as far as sometimes even saving lives. We had, we had such cases, all pro bono, of course. We have a special interest in the UK since uh, we are a UK-owned company. Therefore, we are very naturally gravitate towards the UK. We even recently ran several seminars and educational sessions with King's College and Oxford University, among others. Today, Luminati's teams are placed all over, all over the globe, and we are about 230 team members in total and growing rapidly. So when we relate to ethics in data collection, we often focus on data privacy, which is great. But what about the behind the scenes of every data collection operation? The data is being collected somehow, 
And when you talk about data privacy, it's after the data was collected already. Isn't it just as important to know how the data is sourced or what kind of technology is used to the data co in the data collection process? Um, what about network? How do you build a data collection network? Is the network monitored? How it's monitored? So on. So please don't get me wrong, especially not in this forum. Data privacy is a critical element. And I think that any data privacy law or regulation is a great framework for all of us to follow. I mean, finally, there's no really great area, gray areas. You can actually understand what you need to do when it comes to data privacy. I also think that we should have the same kind of frameworks when it comes to the data collection operation itself. As always, um, technology moves much faster than the regulators, or usually much faster than the regulators, but it's important that we address these critical ethical questions now before we are made to pay a heavy price in the future because the scale of the online data collection is already massive. Matters such as respecting the digital ecosystem that you're working on and ensuring that we don't cause any harm are massively important. Uh, I mean, data or web information is probably an organization's most powerful tool today. Data is almost like, it's, it, people are saying data is the new oil. I think that it's actually the new water. Uh, it's everywhere. You can't really live without it as an organization. For this reason, ethics in the data sphere should cover the entire cycle of the data collection operation, which isn't really happening today. So how do we define what's ethical, what's not ethical? Or what do we focus on when building a data collection ethical framework? I think these three key focus areas that I'm about to discuss will cover all initial and even advanced plans. The first and most vital element is transparency or at least commitment to transparency if you're just starting, in, but in everything that you're doing, whether it's with your technology while building your data collection network or just within your organization's methodologies or, or your working culture, transparency should guide you. So transparency will often ensure that you are operating on an ethical side of the, on the ethical side of the equation because people will just feel free to tell you if you aren't. I'm, I'm happy to further elaborate on this topic in the Q&A section and, and share how we do this. The second and possibly most challenging step is defining your ethical code early on. What does it mean? I often remove the financial aspect of every ethical decision I have to make as a CEO of a data collection company. And I ask myself, what cases am I and the company are willing to engage in. Once you just disconnected the financial element, it all becomes a bit more clear. And I mean, what cases are crossing our red lines, it's a bit easier to, to, to decide on. I, I do that often to make sure I keep up with the market shifts. An example about this specific um, tip is, let's say if you take the online ecosystem and unethical behaviors, we can talk about fake social media engagement. Fake social media engagement was once considered somewhat or very slightly acceptable. Today, that is an activity that is considered unethical in any way. For example, Twitch.com, which I guess most of you know, um, had declared 
officially a war on fake social media engagement at a time that was an unprecedented move. Now, however, it's become the norm. So when you make your decision and define your ethical code, don't be afraid to communicate it. Make sure your entire organization as well as your ecosystem are fully aware of your ethical code. Worst case, you'll learn and you'll adjust it. Last but not least, keep monitoring. You, you need to safeguard your data and your partner's data at all costs. This is what your operation relies on. So conduct tests, whether they are manual or automated, better to do both. Have a very comprehensive and strict compliance procedures in place to rule out any risk taking. Additionally, invite external audits and use methods and processes that will make this mission a major success. You can read more about this specifically um, in Luminati's NDS consultation submission that we filed a couple of months ago. So during the talk, I mentioned and referred to a guiding framework several times. Why is that? Like me, I'm sure that you also find that ethics as a topic is never easy to define. What is ethical for one is not the case for the other. For sure, it's a different case if you're a machine and everything is operating on the machine. When it comes to data, that is twice as challenging, I think. As such, uh, very recently, as you can see in this slide, together with the World Ethical Data Forum, we initiated an external committee that will serve as a carrying or guiding framework for all of these complex questions that we all face, and hopefully it will provide frequent and continuous guidance. Whether it's with reports or updated releases or even studies, we aim for this committee to serve as the go-to address for all data critical matters. So if you wish to join, let me know. We are recruiting members as we speak. Uh, we already recruited uh, the first few and we are very happy to extend the invitation to all of you, uh, all of the attendees of Databytes. So after all of this talk about ethics, and I'm going to finish in 30 seconds. I hope you have your ethical code well tuned in by now. Um, if I had to provide it all in one sentence, I would say that data collection ethics, not just in a commercial um, ecosystem, relies on, relies on your willingness to address critical questions early on. Uh, don't, don't close your eyes and on being transparent with yourself, your partners or users, whoever it will be, and your industry all the way through. This will lead you to create this or select the right technology or and methodologies, and of course, your data collection operation. When it comes to data collection ethics, transparency is really the ingredient you cannot do without. The, the brighter the light, the better your chances are to succeed. Um, Thank you, Gavin, for having me. And getting back to your initial opening slide, I saw that uh, in the in the after party when we have drinks, you talked about the Israeli brandy. And as an Israeli, I would like a glass of these. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I, I, I look forward to us trying to source some of that. Um, thank <laughs> you very much, Or. Um, We've got some great questions coming in already, um, but just to remind everybody that if you are watching on Slido, um, you can obviously put the questions there. And if you happen to be on the IFG YouTube channel, you can go to bit.ly slash slidodb17 to ask all some questions. Um, so let's start with um, another one from Anonymous, who's having a very busy evening. 
what is ethical for one is not the case for another, they say. How do you cope with differences in both legal regime and attitudes in different countries, for example, the US versus the UK? Great, Uh, great question. Thanks. Thank you, Anonymous. Um, So the thing is that there are no borders in in the country that we operate, which is the web. So now we have the biggest pool of information in the history of mankind without any borders. You can see everything no matter where you are. You can collect it if it's publicly available, no matter where you are and who you are. Uh, But still, you have to have some regulations and some laws. So when it comes to legal, actually, it's really easy. You just need to understand that there are laws and you need to comply so you can just take the legal advice and do that. It's easy with legal, really. We, we are doing it every day, so you need to check the law and make sure you comply. I completely agree, and this is what we talk a lot, a lot about, that when it comes to what's ethical and what's not, it's not just that I'll perceive something as ethical and maybe someone in different geolocation will see it as an unethical. As I said in the slides, what the computer will think, I mean, eventually he's the one who is executing the, the orders. Uh, so ethics is a, is a very complicated area. So this is one reason why we're initiating the ethical committee, just because there aren't any guidelines about what to do. So we are a self-regulated company because we realized early on when we just started at, at around 2014 that if we want to be here, here for the long term, and we do, we have to regulate ourselves because it will take a decade until someone else will tell us how to do things. And we, we, we've been doing something pretty pretty new. So we, we just listed down and we have you know just an, a public uh, page shows all this information of what it means to be ethical on the data collection um, industry. For example, um, you need to, we need, we require to know uh, in a documented way, what is the specific use case of every one of our customers. Now, we have thousands and thousands of customers. This is a very counterintuitive thing to do when, when you're a commercial business that wants to have as many customers as you can. But still, we have a team of seven full-time compliance officers that all day long, 20, 20, 24-7, interviewing potential customers, I would even say interrogating them to understand what is their use case and what they're trying to do. This is one way to uh, to do it. And we have this page, uh, what we call luminati.io slash ethical, where you can find all of these other, uh, all of our ethical approach and guidelines. Excellent, thank you. We've got a couple of questions that follow on really nicely from that. Um, one from Anonymous, again. Um, who asks, is unethical data collection easy to spot? What does it look like? And a question from Mary Susan Barry, which is a bit more specific around, how do you determine if an algorithm is ethical or not? Right, so first of all, I think that first of all, you need to understand what can be the damage. So if someone is asking to do a specific project with with our platform, for example, and we understand the use case, then we need to understand also what can be the potential damage. For example, if the data collection operation will be too massive, so too many requests to a certain data source, which is a website, in a very short period of time, we're risking in slowing down that website, okay? 
Is it legal? Yeah, I mean, it's not good that it's legal, but there isn't any law that tells you you can slow down a server. It's for sure it's unethical. And it will also damage our customer, ourselves, the whole industry, for sure the users of the website. So ethical? No, it's not ethical. So here we understood the damage. Then once you understand the damage, you can take the precautions and measurements to make sure that an unethical behavior won't happen even unintentionally by an, an irresponsible algorithm. So in this case, for example, we have around half a billion metrics, okay, 500 million metrics, and uh, that that are uh, being run in in real time all the time, a, a large portion of them is actually to check this to make sure that there isn't any what we call DDoS attack on a server intentionally or intentionally unintentionally. This is just one example again. Great. Thank you. Um, we've got about three minutes left, so there, there will be a few uh, more questions we can squeeze in. Um, Anonymous, again, <laughs> asks, what do you mean by transparency? What should be transparent and who for? So I think that the, the answer is pretty easy. If, if you don't have, like have, must, to hide it, just make sure it's transparent. So, for example, in, in the company, and we're a business, inside the company, everything is transparent except the, the employee's uh, compensation. Any, everything else is completely transparent to everyone. Now, that's if, not even related to ethical, but to, to an ethical approach, but it is actually because the mindset of the employees in Luminati is that no hiding, nothing, everything is open. This is also how we write the code. This is also how we talk to customers. This is also how we uh, declare on our intentions to do something. Uh, so I think that if you don't have to hide it, for example, if it's something private data, for example, like employee compensation, which I also consider maybe we should make it transparent one day, uh, then the default should be transparent. And I, I unfortunately, that is not the case. The web supposed to be transparent. When we're talking about publicly available data, unfortunately, the public data is not available. You as an individual can open a browser and see a data any website that you want to see, for example. If you're an organization, if you're a researcher from Oxford and you want to conduct a large-scale uh, research by collecting massive amounts of data online, you'll get blocked. This is discrimination. So basically, if all of the websites in the world will just be open, I wouldn't even go that far saying have an API for it, but at least won't make a specific effort to block you this is real transparency, transparency that creates competition, and competition is always a good thing for us, you know, the consumers, the individuals, the citizens of the internet. Excellent. We've got 45 seconds. I'm going to squeeze in one final question. Um, James Ellis asks, have you seen the GDS, the Government Digital Service here in the UK, data ethics framework? What did you think? As I suppose there's a wider question. Are there any good ethics frameworks that you'd uh, point people towards? Yes, I've seen it and I see many others. The problem currently is that it's too focused on data privacy. That's fine, but you have too many of these. Privacy is covered from any aspect. We're talking about the, 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 what comes before you get the data, how you extract the data. That's a completely different thing, and it's just an untouched territory from the ethics and compliance point of view. And this is what we're trying to solve also. 
Perfect. That's the perfect uh, place to end. Or oh, thank you very much indeed. Um, it's really great to have a, a different perspective um, on on sort of data ethics. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, I noticed that one of the questions uh, that we didn't get around to was uh, contact details uh, for Luminati. You can find them on Twitter at Luminati underscore IO, uh, and I'm sure you'll be able to pick them up from there. So we move on to uh, our final presentation of the evening. Um, so I'll hand over to Ian and Lee. Over to you. Thanks for the opportunity, Gavin. Uh, just excited to be here. So excited I forgot to come off mute, but there we go. So tonight, Lee and myself would uh, like to talk about a uh, project we've worked on in the data science campus near ONS with our colleagues in the methodology department as well. And it's yeah, it was looking at uh, traffic cameras, pretty much. So why are we looking at traffic cameras and what were the aims? One of the issues, I suppose you could say, during the pandemic was that uh, the government had a need to look at uh, changing patterns in, say, mobility and behaviour in real time. So it's you know, a big focus of the government response there. So we in the ONS were tasked with exploring different data sources that might give insights in, say, mobility and you know, society as the lockdown conditions changed. So one of the things we looked at with this were, can we uh, make better use of an asset that taxpayers already pay for, which are the open, uh, low resolution traffic camera imagery, which is made available uh, across the internet. Also as well, that means we'll be able to increase the public sector capability to actually make use of it, rather than just being like a black box. So what do we actually mean by busyness? Well, what we're actually trying to do is just count the number of things we see. Things like, say, how many cars did I see today in an area? I'm not worried about um, how many cars passed through an individual traffic camera. It's just every 10 minutes, we have a quick look at a traffic camera and go, many cars, many vans, many people. And we just count how many are there. That's all we're recording. Uh, it's only in fixed locations as well. So we're not interested in, say, the origins of people traveling to and from a route and we're not looking at that. It's just where the cameras are located. And then we're looking at vehicles and pedestrians with one system, which is really handy. So we don't have to have, say, scoot loops of vehicles or something else for the individuals. And then we're looking at the urban areas only in the town centers where the main population is basically. We're not looking at, say, the motorways because Highways England have already got that set up. And of course, we can't look at the interiors because traffic cameras aren't in you know, buildings, if you see what I mean. So they're just outside. And it produces something as a 24-7 time series. It doesn't break it down and say, this is commuting traffic or this was leisure traffic. It's just a feel for how busy places are. The challenge we've got, though, is when you're using these uh, low-definition uh, traffic cameras, there's a lot of them out there, and they can be quite blurry as well. So it's quite a, a challenge there to select which ones are of use. There's no point us counting the number of uh, on a, looking for pedestrians on a dual carriageway. Hopefully, there shouldn't be any. It's not a place you're meant to be. It's more a case in the residential areas. We're interested in just, you know, are people out and about? Is everyone locked down at home? Or is now we're opening up? Are people, you know, taking advantage of it, coming out and having a walk? So there's a lot of cameras out there we can use every 10 minutes and 24-7. The actual data we've got is about five gigs a day, which is not a huge amount. Your mobile phone could cover that. But that is about 200,000 images a day to process, which is why we've used cloud. So just uh, to have a chat about the machine learning pipeline we use. 
hello. This figure shows the machine learning pipeline. Ideally, new images are fetched every 10 minutes from cameras. However, in practice, images can be duplicated if hosts do not update them in time. Cameras can be offline and display dummy images. Images can also be partially or completely distorted due to all kinds of physical issues. These 40 images will mislead the final statistical results, so we use the image processing techniques to clean the data as the first step. The object detection uses a deep learning model to identify semantic objects in a single image including both the static and the moving objects. As we are aiming to detect activity changes, we developed a static filter to determine whether or not these objects are moving. As the images are at very low resolution, sometimes rubbish bin can be easily misclassified as pedestrian. Our static filter can remove them as background. This real-time series of moving objects will go through imputation and the seasonal adjustment and then produce time series and QA reports. That's great. Thanks, Lynx. Just a quick view of the sort of outputs we generate. Internally, we generate graphs of quite detail to make sure uh, we're aware of the traffic cameras when they go down, because these are quite an unreliable um, data source. So again, it's free of charge, released to the open internet into the public domain. So we can't really complain there. But it's useful to be able to tell people when we've had to impute large chunks, say, for instance, uh, at one point, uh, one of the systems went down for two days over the weekend, so the imputation just filled in the gaps, so it's useful to people to know. But the final data that we then release is about this faster indicator. It's just the aggregate of a day for an area. So it's, for instance, say, the number of cars we've seen in London on a Tuesday. It's that level of aggregation. Is, it's very heavily anonymized, anything we release. So if you want to talk about the business side. Yeah, we have cross-validated our local business indicator against the Northeast automatic number plate recognition data and the London road traffic data from Department of Transport. Both show significant correlation. You may ask, why do we still do this project if it's closely correlated to other data sources? Firstly, we can deliver these static results to support the fast decision-making on real-time at hourly, daily, weekly base. Traffic cameras provide insights, particularly local insights, that complement other mobility and transport data or plug the gaps where other data sources are not accessible or available. For example, COVID, uh, Google COVID mobility data is aggregated from users who have turned on on local history setting. Highways England covers motorways and A roads. Commercial mobility data is not publicly accessible with limited user groups and can be very expensive to purchase with special attention on all kinds of terms and conditions. So this Openly accessible traffic cameras are normally set around the traffic junctions, residential or commercial areas with coverage of both vehicles and the pedestrians. They are publicly accessible and free. We only need to pay low-cost on cloud-based infrastructure. So combining with other data sources, this can inform local and national policy interventions, such as those see during COVID pandemic, especially where regional and local trends may differ very widely. 
uh, back to you, Yen. Thank you. Thanks, Lee. So just a quick summary then. So it's a project we started back in March at the start of lockdown between a couple of parts of the ONS. And it is an experimental research project which we're now looking to move into production. And just thinking back to Orr's notes on the ethics, just to say everything we do is pushed out to the open. So we've got a technical blog we published, the methodologies published, currently working on an academic paper as well uh, with uh, Newcastle University. And also the source code we've uh, used to create this, we're just currently tidying up basically, and that then will be released in the open as well. So just a quick shout out to the Urban Observatory in Newcastle. Say so thanks for your help there, guys, with the, the project. And that's the name of the indicator that's published. Otherwise, uh, Gavin, uh, yes, thank you. Back to you and any questions? Thank you very much indeed, uh, both. Um, just a reminder to everyone watching, if you're watching us on Slido, you can use the Slido functionality to ask questions uh, to Ian and Lee about anything that they've just covered. And um, if you happen to be watching us on the IFG YouTube channel, then um, go to bit.ly slash Slido DB17. Um, thank you both very much. Um, I'll, I'll kick, kick us off with a sort of classic uh, question in in all of the work um, that you've been doing on this um, what have been the main barriers the main hurdles that you've had to overcome what have been the the, the particular challenges I think one of the uh, main challenges was well apart from remembering to turn off mute every now and then is where we're staying at uh, home so much it was quite interesting to try and spin up a team in effect from different parts geographically and work together. And that was quite a, a challenge. That was a, an interesting learning curve. And likewise, um, using cloud as well. We didn't want to run it on like a, in a machine in the corner of the office. There's no one in the office. And it's got to be scalable, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a, a good learning curve to use the cloud, a good opportunity then. It meant the team could be based anywhere to use it. And the really nice thing is when you're not using it, you're not paying for it, which is a, a good cost saving there, which is a, another useful side effect. Excellent. Lee, I don't know if uh, any particular barriers or hurdles that you want to talk about as well. Uh, I think Ian covers all points. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, so we've got a question from Jeremy. Uh, I think a few people are probably thinking this. Is there a website where I can see the trends for a postcode, please? Right. Now, um, again, due to like ethics wise, we're only producing numbers which are aggregate over very large areas. So it's actually really high, highly spaced. Otherwise, as you can imagine if you go down too far, you're going to start worrying about are you releasing individuals, you know, how many people are walking about. If there's a small village, say, with only, say, five people walking in it, you're going to suddenly clock who it is that might be um, out and about. So the numbers we generate are very high aggregates. So long story short, no, sorry. But it's like the northeast, London, big areas like that. Uh, where, where would people be able to find that uh, if they wanted to see it? Yeah, sure. We're going to look at that information. That is on the uh, ONS website. It's published every Wednesday. It's updated. It's called the uh, it's the Fat COVID nineteen Faster Indicators. And our particular um, section, if you look down, uh, we're called uh, the Traffic Camera Activity section. So if you scroll down, there's two parts on traffic cameras, and ours is the second one. And you often see the various graphs showing there. Hopefully, no spuddling. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, and I think we'll be tweeting out a link uh, to some further details about the project later as well. Um, we've got a question from Ash Tanki. Uh, great talk. Can you tell us a bit more about the data cleaning? Which programming languages do you use? Python with TensorFlow? Question uh, mark. And can you give yeah. a bit of detail on the machine learning model you've developed? Yeah, sure. Um, 
let's see before after I'll, I'll go through it saying Lee maybe maybe I'll add something in a bit about the machine learning model but everything's and, um, Lee do you want to put your camera on as well so we can uh, say hello properly so I nearly forgot to leave mine on that was a double whammy with the mute on both things there hello everyone <laughs> <laughs> so just a quick thought everything's written in Python apart from some of the the time imputation code is written in R because each library that's used for imputation. Everything else is otherwise is written in Python. I think what else the question was. The model is um, using <laughs> TensorFlow, trying to get out there. Uh, Lee, do you want to say a couple of words about the RCNN, maybe? Oh, yes. Uh, the question is more related to data clean. I think uh, it's a very good question because it's a very important first step to get data clean, to get reliable statistic in the first place. So uh, when we do it, we actually in the beginning haven't sorted it, but later we notice that in reality, so many problems, so many faulty images can produce due to, okay, come back to how do we solve this? <laughs> so because we fetch image every 10 minutes, classic background modeling and the foreground modeling doesn't work for this one because they cannot uh, generate a background model quickly uh, in 10 minutes. And also because camera may switch angles from time to time. Sometimes they switch every 10 seconds or one minute or some time. So the time the, the camera switch is so fast that the classic modeling method cannot model it properly adapt to this switch speed. So what do we do is through analyze all these images, we use some method called a structure similarity measure uh, using images before and after in 10 minutes interval that works very well to pick up background foreground because it's a similarity. Uh, measure, structure measure, which can adapt all kinds of illumination changes and uh, some small noise, all kinds of things. Yeah, that's something we used. The language is uh, Python. Thank you. Excellent, thank you. Um, we've got another question from Anonymous um, who asks how well it works tonight. in the dark. <laughs> um, not very well, I think I would suggest there, because if it's completely unlit road, all you're going to see is two white spots and it's a lorry. It's a, no, actually, it was a mini very close to the camera. My bad. So quite poorly there. I think uh, the bit to remember is the imagery that is released in the public domain, which we're using, is very low uh, resolution. It's quite pixely. It's not. It's, you're not talking infrared cameras or anything like that. It's uh, quite naive. So um, we're just grateful to have access to something. Really, I suppose you're looking out there making the best use of a, a freely available asset and they're trying to get better value from it. Excellent. Um, we've got loads of questions on sort of related in, um, on, on, on on related theme. Um, so anonymous again um, asks where you'd like to take this project in the future. Anon anonymous again, who may be a different anonymous or the same anonymous. How do you anticipate this could be used post COVID, um, and could it be used for nefarious means? Mary Susan Barry also asks, what other uses do you consider there will be for your work? Um, so lots there about uh, where it might go next. And Chloe has quite a specific one around that, which is, could it be useful in bringing about specific environmentally sustainable or pedestrian friendly changes? Um, she's thinking specifically about systems such as low traffic neighbourhoods. So I suppose uh, lots of questions about where you want to take it next and how else it could be applied. So shall I take that firstly? I've just got a, a few thoughts with um, 
the main bit we'll try and do is to put the development code we've got into the public domain because then things like uh, local councils, if they want, can use it on their imagery rather than having to push it outwards. You know, want to make sure the uh, basically the public sector, as it were, gets better value for money out of the asset. So there's that in the short term. We're especially through partnering with uh, Newcastle University there. But, you know, I think they've got a project coming up which should hopefully start triggering that. And it's also across Europe as well where the ONS is linked with other European uh, statistic bodies. So there's an ESS net project which I'm hoping to share with that, try and share best practice across. So I think that mentions part of it. So basically we're trying to get more people using an asset that's already been paid for really, try and get better value for money out of it for the taxpayer. Yeah, and also I add an extra immediate point for its usage. For example, uh, after COVID, this is still available, for example, for EU exit, how the port busy, how quiet, what's this trend look like, how do we manage this traffic, all kinds of things. Not only COVID, COVID is one of the uh, situations we are handle. Uh, to monitor behavior, all kinds of mobility changes. But considering in the future, for example, net zero and this kind of thing, all need transport flow, pedestrian flow, people move around, all this data to put it together for the decision make. Thank you. I think the other thought as well, just thinking about the nefarious means, the useful part of uh, like where we release everything is such a high aggregation. You'd be quite hard pushed, I must admit. So that was one part we have, like uh, any of the projects near UNESCO, through full ethical review before we let loose on anything. And then it's experimental, then it's going over longer term products, and it's right, look at it again, uh, you know, ethically again, right, is this the right thing to be doing? So, as far as the ONS is going to work, I'm, I'm quite comfortable, I must admit. Excellent. Thank you. Unfortunately, we're out of time, which means I can't ask a couple of remaining questions, although one of them um, is Ash, who says um, they'd love to see the code. Um, could you send us a link of the GitHub, please? I think you mentioned that um, you're hoping to make that available at some yeah, point. Yeah, it will be. I think it's linked into our publication as well. If you go onto the website, it should link through there. And it's probably going to go straight to a page with a readme saying, we're nearly ready. Bear with us. But it is aiming within a month, hopefully. I think we should get the code fully pushed out there. Brilliant. Well, thank you both very much indeed. It was great to hear more about the project. Thank you. Thanks for, yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, and in fact, it, it sort of brings us back to our first ever data bytes. Uh, we had our first, our first ever data bytes presenter was Louisa Nolan from the Data Science Campus, who was talking about the uh, wider faster economic indicators work. So uh, it's it's wonderful to see how some of that's been developing. So all that uh, remains for me to say now, uh, just a few uh, parish uh, notices. Um, and while I do that, I'm going to share my screen so you've got the details of this evening's drinks. Um, if you want to join us um, and give various historical chancellors a run for their money. Um, the parish notices are, um, I mentioned earlier that uh, my IFG colleagues have been doing lots of budget analysis. So do make sure you go to the Institute for Government website uh, to keep abreast of all of that. Also lots of events um, coming up over the next few weeks as well, including some more on devolution. So do keep your eyes peeled for those. Uh, all that remains for me to say, apart from please do come and join us for drinks, uh, bit.ly slash db17drinks, password ifgdb17, are three very big thank yous. Um, first of all, to all of you for uh, coming along virtually and as ever for some fantastic questions to our speakers. A huge thank you to Luminati Networks, our sponsors uh, for this evening. And as I said earlier, we can't continue the Data Bytes series without the support of various sponsors. So please do get in touch if you'd be interested in uh, doing so. 
And finally, please join me in a virtual round of applause for our fantastic speakers this evening. A huge range of different topics and different perspectives covered. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. Hopefully see you for drinks shortly. And if not, see you on the 7th of April for Data Bytes number 18. Thank you very much indeed.